It's time to get your checking account to zero with free checking from PenFed. That's zero ATM fees, zero balance requirements, and zero time spent waiting for your paycheck to direct deposit because you can receive it up to two days early. Open your account with just $25 and see how big zero can be. Apply online today at penfed.org slash free checking. Early direct deposit eligibility may vary between pay periods and timing of payers' funding. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed, insured by NCUA. I like downshift better than stagnation because it's not like there hasn't been progress. Obviously, there has. I'd rather live today than in 1973, and I'd rather live today than in the year 2000. But we just haven't had the pace, I think, we expected that we could have had. So, so maybe compared to our expectations, it has been stagnation. But I want to make sure we have the right environment and the, and the tools to create whatever future that we want to. That seems to make sense to us and that we would want to live in. Welcome to the Stranded Technologies podcast. I'm your host and founder of Infinita Fund, Nicholas Anzinger. In this show, we talk about how to accelerate the future. Our thesis is that many life-improving technologies are held back by institutional barriers. How can we unblock vast opportunities while mitigating against the risks? What ethical principles, rules, and regulations can guide us on that path? We will discuss these questions with entrepreneurs, policymakers, and industry experts. If you enjoy the show, please give us five stars and visit us at infinitafund.com to join the community. All right, today is September the 29th, 2023, and my guest is Jim Pedokoukis. Jim is a policy analyst at the American Enterprise Institute and writes the Faster Please newsletter on Substack. This episode comes with the release of Jim's new book, The Conservative Futurist, How to Create the Sci-Fi World That We Were Promised. Jim, welcome to the show. Uh, Nicholas, thanks a lot for having me on. This is great. Great. Do you want to give listeners a bit of an introduction to, to you and to the book and why did you write it? Well, uh, I think uh, a lot of people will have books coming out around this time. And my book comes out on October 3rd. Uh, will sell you well. They had a lot of extra time, you know, during the pandemic. They weren't commuting and they decided to write a book. And that certainly didn't didn't hurt uh, having a, a little bit extra time. And But it wasn't just that. Uh, a, a, two main reasons. One reason is I looked around and despite the fact that we had a million warnings and white papers that we might have a pandemic, we still didn't seem very prepared. You remember, they know, we didn't have enough masks and not enough ventilators. And, and there have been white paper after white paper, yet we still seem uh, unprepared. And I wondered, well, you know, what, what, what meaning uh, should I take from that? And one meaning I took from that is preparation will only get you so far especially on big sort of rare, serious events that people have a hard time, you know, mentally really gearing up for that lots of preparation. And again, yeah, we live in a society that watched a million zombie movies. So like we should have been really ready uh, at all levels. And then when we finally had these vaccines come out, it was really like, hey, that's what you need to have. You need to be a rich technologically capable society to deal with big problems, especially unexpected problems, problems that uh, maybe they appear not when you expect them or in ways you didn't expect, or even if you expected them, it helps to be rich and have a lot of tools 
uh, at your disposal. So that was certainly one reason. And the other was really sort of the anniversary. And it's 2023. And in 1973, at least statistically, if you look at you know economic stats, it really marked a downshift in U.S. productivity growth and, and many other countries. And even though we've had some ups and downs, we never have since had that kind of extended period of very rapid productivity growth, which is a sort of a stand-in for technological progress that we did in those immediate post-war decades. And now it's 50 years later, and this it's been, I call it the great downshift. Other people call it the great stagnation. And I thought, here we are, a 50th anniversary. Uh, I don't want another 50 years of that. I don't want another 50 years, and some other guy's going to write a book saying, now we've had a hundred years, you know, can, will we, will we ever figure it out? Will we ever, you know, have the, where we have the sort of future that I sort of imagined when I was a kid that we would have, and maybe some people in the nineties imagined that we would have by now. Uh, I want to make that future happen. I don't want to wait another 50 years to make it happen. Fantastic. What was the future you imagined as a title? What were your views on technology growing up and then how did they evolve over time? I'm asking because. There's kind of a, it differs a lot by generation, right? Sort of, I just grew up with the first MS-DOS computers and things like that. And so the computer age felt like accelerating, right? There was so much innovation in the world of bits, right? So it was really sort of waking me up when I heard of the great stagnation, Tyler Cohen, Peter Thiel. How was that for you? Well, I, I have sort of two experiences. One of the experiences I mentioned, which is just what I imagined as a kid. And that was sort of your classic I guess now it seems like retro uh, futurist uh, science fiction, which is, you know, space colonies, undersea cities. I know, of course, the now sort of, you know, uh, cliche flying cars. Uh, so enough progress that I, I thought that by this time, I could see how we would get to kind of a, the Star Trek world, right? Like that, you know, maybe we wouldn't be there, but I could see how that might actually happen. So that's what I sort of imagined as a kid. But then it was during the 1990s and uh, when I was a journalist and I was out in California and I would write a lot about technology companies, there was certainly a feeling in the late 90s that like this was an inflection point, that we, we were seeing such rap rapid progress. You could not, not only could you, you, you see it, what was happening in Silicon Valley, but it was also reflected simultaneously in all the economic statistics that maybe this was it. Maybe we were entering a period of very rapid sustained progress and economic growth. And back, back then is the first time I heard about this notion of, you know, of the singularity, um, that maybe, maybe this was it, you know, Hey, uh, after, after a 25 year gap since the early seventies, we were finally back on track, but it turns out we weren't actually back on track. And despite, and I think you make a good point that when I talk about a downshift, I think I like downshift better than stagnation. Because it's not like there hasn't been progress. Obviously, there has. I'd rather live today than in 1973, and I'd rather live today than in the year 2000. But we just haven't had the pace, I think, we expected that we could have had. So, so maybe compared to our expectations, it, is, uh, it has been stagnation. And so, I, you know, so I, I have an open mind about what we might produce in the future, but I want to make sure we have the right environment and the, and the tools to create whatever future that we want to, that seems to make sense to us and that we would want to live in. 
Great. Yeah, it's something that's important to highlight and that's the stagnation narrative sometimes gets wrong, right? We still are progressing, just not comparing ourselves to the best versions of ourselves, right? So on this topic, we often cover very specific reasons why different sectors in the economy are lagging behind, why the prices are so damn high and that, those kind of things. What do you think, what examples would you point out at to give people that might still believe, oh, we had all this progress in the weather fits. What would you point out to them showing that, hey, maybe you want to think twice and there's a real problem here that's we, that we need to solve? I mean, I think it's, I think uh, to me, this is the one that just screams uh, that we're sitting, we're sitting here, uh, not just, not a lot of people, not just worried about climate change, like what's going to happen. You know, how, how quickly will the climate change, but that, but that we're so worried that we're looking at new technologies and saying, we can't have those technologies because they burn too much energy. And, you know, we can't have Bitcoin because it burns too much energy. We can't have AI because it uses too much energy. We need to pull back. Forget if you're concerned about the use cases for cryptocurrency or you're concerned that AI is going to take all the jobs and then kill us. We just simply cannot even get to that point because these are energy intensive technologies. And I mean, that is, it's like a joke that we could have ample, ample, abundant, cheap, clean energy, all we'd ever need right now. But we made a decision not to do that. And so not only do we not, not only do we have to worry about, about, you know, the science of climate change. But we're supposedly supposed to retreat from all these other technologies as well. Obviously, this issue of energy has become a bigger issue, you know, since the uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. It was one that we were going to face, you know, either way. And if, if, that, if that isn't a powerful enough example for you right now that of the really catastrophic decision that we made and what happens when you let, when you let fear and emotion drive your decision-making. Well, I think that's a good example. Yeah. yeah. So can you describe a bit or do a bit of an anatomy of how we got there and what's still holding us back, right? So you use the terms upwing and downwing in the book. Mm -hmm. So what is even downwing, right? So why is it that we, that what leads us to hold back progress in so many different ways? And I guess the question is, is always asked at this point, like what caused the great stagnation or the downturn, right? Which is a bit hard to talk to because it could be, or it is so many different things, not like one single thing. Um, and it's just very overdetermined, but how would you, uh, so, so can you introduce the term upwing and downwing and how do we start talking about that question? Yeah. Uh, despite the name, despite the name of the book being the conservative futurist, I really view the book as as a, certainly bipartisan, and I view the book as trying to not get caught in the traditional left versus right kind of framework. So, and I'm not the first one to come up with this uh, concept to be sure, but the notion of upwing rather than left wing or right wing is the notion that as human beings, we have the, the capabilities and wisdom and power to solve big problems and create a better world. Now, now I didn't say a utopia, but a better world, that we can do that. Uh, Downwing says, 
too much risk. Don't take any risk. Uh, better safe than sorry. Upwing says the biggest risk you can take is taking zero risk because then there's no innovation and you can't deal with problems. Uh, so that is upwing versus downwing. It's a very upwing book, obviously. And sort of how we got here, in a way, it's like, it's not, you know, it's not a shock. It's not a shock that as a country becomes wealthy, that it gets, it both gets more cautious. And I guess it gets cautious in a way where you begin to think more about the downsides uh, from industrialization and economic growth. I mean, I think that's a fairly universal economic finding as countries get wealthier. I mean, we're, we're seeing in China right now where there's a lot where there where one thing people complain very vocally about is air pollution. So that's that. So the fact that in the United States we were going to have some sort of environmental movement, I think that's uh, that that's very logical. That's very normal. But the kind of environmental movement that we got, I don't think was necessarily predetermined. Uh, I think you had, I think you have a variety of factors. I think you had growing fears because of the Cold War, uh, growing fears about radiation. So that's something people thought a lot about radiation. And the more people learned about what happened at the end of World War II, that began to get cemented in people's minds. Fear of radiation, fear of nuclear war fear of what atomic testing would do. So that we had this tremendous fear uh, of radiation. Uh, you also had books coming out, which, paid, which were fairly apocalyptic. Uh, Silent Spring being a very famous one by Rachel Carson, which really was grabbed by the media and really sort of penetrated the public consciousness. And then also at the same time, and something I spent a little bit of time on, the you had the Vietnam War, which in the United States, with which both made people question sort of the system and elites, but also seemed to show that techno capitalism was a bad thing. That it produced napalm and it produced weapons, and and you had this military-industrial complex and universities working together to fight this war. And at the same time, you had all these young people from the baby boom. It would put that all together, and there's a lot of skepticism about the existing system of government and the military and big corporations and what they were, the kind of future they were going to produce. One sort of technology story called it, called it all together the mega machine. And the mega machine, all that put together, was just going to ground, grind this country down and we needed something different and you saw this reflected a lot in the counterculture what instead of the big and the complex what we should value is the small and the local and the simple and small is beautiful local is beautiful simple is beautiful um and you see a lot, a lot now like the solar punk idea you know wind turbines or windmills those are beautiful you know solar panels you know, nucle not nuclear reactors, bad. Nuclear reactors are bad. They're complicated. They're expensive. It requires this huge industrial effort to create them. Uh, so we had that, that, that kind, all those forces that I mentioned created an environmental movement rather than saying, hey, let's think about how we can use technology to both clean the environment and produce the energy we need. And so we got a, an environmental movement that said, 
we should not be using so much energy. Uh, we should, economic growth was bad. We're using up all the earth. We need to do something else. We need to go backward. We need to either stabilize economies or we need to go back to a simpler time. And we've been living with that version of environmentalism really for over a half century. Yeah. Well, something that we talk a lot about on this podcast or that would come close to my thesis of what we also need to fix, right? And what can be fixed in one way or the other uh, is the idea or, or of regulatory capture, right? So there's some specifics that are correct about the idea and wrong about it. Um, but what's definitely happening is that almost any of these sectors, they have like very specific regulations. So like NEPA, for example, an environmental assessment when it comes to infrastructure or like the NRC for nuclear power, it's just, you made that mistakes once and then it's irreversible or extremely costly to reverse because it's kind of enshrined or hard coded into like federal law. People are always like skeptical of something new, what they don't know, they don't trust. So any new technology is by definition like resistant, but, you know, entrepreneurs like myself and venture capitalists, and I work with entrepreneurs in these fields, the strategy is just to de-risk it and put it in the hands of people, like put the Uber ad in the app store and give it to people and have the ones that use it and advocate on your behalf. And that's the strategy, how we get technology adoption, but it's just not possible if the gates are closed through some of these hard coded software in the legal fabric of society. Have you thought about that thesis and how it influences things? And also what would be avenues for, for solutions? Because it's after all, also a solution oriented book. I, and I'm sure you've had other guests talk about, you know, the example of nuclear energy, um, and how we've created these barriers that just will squash innovation in its tracks. That's history, but it's, we're not, this isn't just history. I mean, we, we're seeing it all in real time where we had about 15 minutes to marvel at these breakthroughs in AI and generative AI, especially these large language models, before we began hearing about the scare story. All the jobs are gone and existential risk and the call for an AI pause. Some people calling for nationalizing of these technologies. Congress saying, we need to hurry up. It's, it, you know, there's too much progress. We need to. And so that is a scenario in which obstacles, there was a rush to, to as you say, our code limitations right now before people sort of even realize what these technology, I mean, granted, a lot of people are, are, are sort of you know, playing with these technologies. But I think there's an understanding that if people who want these to be heavily, a heavily regulated technology, that they need to move very, very quickly or else they're going to end up in a situation where you're right. You're going to create a, a, an army of pro-technology lobbyists, whether it's companies already using the technology to make themselves more productive, people using these, these technologies. So that, I think that thesis really, I partially, partially explains sort of the, the rush to regulate probably more successful in Europe so far than here. But I think also what goes into it is that they feel like they blew it 30 years ago when, the, when we take, took a light regulatory approach to the internet. And they feel that, you know, the U.S. was wrong and Bill Clinton was wrong. And, and they're not going to let that happen again. They're not going to have this unregulated new technology dispersed throughout the entire economy. And so they're going to make up for that mistake 
with AI. But again, I hope the technology is progressing fast enough, is diffusing fast enough, will produce, will will uh, prove uh, useful enough that these regulatory efforts will fall flat. What I wanted to get at is some of these gates kind of are closed, right? So take nuclear, for example, right? What are scenarios where we can make it work or we can get to energy abundance within American institutions, right? It is very hard for me to see how you can get sort of enough lobbying power to reverse these kind of very hard codes. I think if you would have told me back in 2011, after the Fukushima meltdown, that we'd be talking a little over a decade later about it's something that looks like a real nuclear renaissance uh, here, across Europe, even in Japan. I think it says something. I think what it says is that people don't like to sit in the dark and they don't like to sit in a cold house in the winter and they don't like to sit in a house in the summer. And when people are actually faced in real time in their everyday lives with the kinds of trade-offs that come with, in this case, energy scarcity, governments will respond. I think you see governments responding. When people in Texas don't have power, when people, when people aren't allowed to start new kinds of businesses because you know, they use up too, mer too much uh, energy, in their own lives, they are seeing we don't like shortages. One lesson we should have learned from the pandemic is people don't like not having things. They don't like being able to go to the store and not being able to buy things. They don't like having energy. So I think that sort of very simple incentive, I think will allow, I think slower than I want, a real change in the United States. And I think this is a real re re uh, nuclear renaissance. Uh, I think, now, whether the, what, what those reactors are going to look like, are they going to be the big reactors of the past, these smaller modular reactors? You know, I don't know, but I don't think there's any government, I think, based on what we've learned over the past decade, that wants to tell, no president wants to give a speech telling people, turn down your thermostat and put on a sweater if you're cold. Or, you know, go down the basement, bring out that old fan, pop it in the front window. They do not want to do that. that. That may, maybe they want to do it in some other country. There's not going to do it in the United States of America. And if that's the choice, if fundamentally the choice is to tell people they need to use less, or guess what? Made a mistake 50 years ago. It should be nuclear. Now we're going to make up for it. I think they'll go with the latter. Yeah. Can you talk a bit more about uh, the book you called it, The Three Tailwinds That Could Accelerate an Upwing Future? Right, so we need some triggers like that nuclear renaissance, for example, or AI to really rally behind and like, hey, now's the time to fix some of these things and to get the trend reversed. Yeah, well, we sort of went through the, you know, the, I think the nuclear trend where, uh, where we, where not only, not only did we learn something about, about energy and people's demand for energy and what happens when they don't have access to energy. But we learned a little bit about how people react to scarcity. I hope it doesn't lead to uh, lead to war. But if I'm pushing a if I have a policy idea and I'm in Washington D.C., I I would not be above saying, "Would you prefer China have this advantage? Would you prefer China was a technological leader?" The example I like to give is for, 
what if last November it was a Chinese company announcing a chat GPT like chat that, and, and, and everyone became aware that, wow, instead of the U S having a lead, China had had a lead in artificial intelligence in this new technology, which people think could lead to artificial general intelligence. What would be the mood in this country? We wouldn't be worried about, oh, it's, you know, it's going to take jobs or it's going to take over, uh, and, you know, and wipe people out. We'd be, we'd be, oh my goodness, China has an edge. They have a lead in this technology and they are going to win the AI cold war. They're going to win the tech cold war. And this is going to be the Chinese century. That would be the, that would be the reaction in the United States. And I think concern about China as a geopolitical competitor is absolutely, I think, a powerful motivating force uh, for thinking hard about what we do across a, a range of policies. Are we focused? Are we looking at every policy, perhaps not exclusively, but look at every policy? Does this make us more innovative or does it make us less innovative? Does it encourage progress? Does it make it easier to build in the real world or does it make it harder? Uh, again, I don't want a war, but if the result of that competition is the United States focuses a lot on how to make itself more productive, then great. Then it's worked out. And I have to, I have to also say that, I mean, I, I wish they would have come around 50 years ago, but we see a lot of friend, a lot of my friends who are you know left of center focusing on this issue, focusing on the productive capacity of the economy. They've suddenly realized it's hard to build stuff in this country. It's hard to build a transmission line if you're worried about clean energy. It's hard, it's hard forget about nuclear. It's also hard to build a, 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 a wind turbine or even the factory to build the wind turbine. It's hard to build a solar field. And they've had these wonderful dreams about green new deals. The easy part, and maybe it's maybe it seems like it's the hard part. The easy part is spending money and saying we're gonna send out checks. That is only the beginning. People actually have to be able to convert that money into employees and they have to convert it into permits. It is, it is, not, it is a very difficult proc, uh, uh, process. And I think, th I think this has been a real moment of awakening for a lot of people who have dreams about a clean energy transformation is that we're not ready to do it. I mean, I just wrote something that to create the kind of wind capacity that uh Biden administration wants we need like three dozen factories churning out wind turbines we have one getting from one to three dozen i think under the current system would be very difficult i think there's been a real so hopefully there's some upwing allies on the left and up and also i love it from folks on the left now thinking a lot about housing the housing issue seeing that how it pervades, the lack of housing pervades so many things from productivity to growth, to wages, to inequality. I can see some issues where you can begin to get, listen, I, I, I'm skeptical of the notion we're going to get a fully upwing party and a fully downwing party, but I can certainly see how you could have an active working coalition for progress. That's my hope. Maybe we can talk a bit more about that because there seems to be uh, a moment like it's called supply set progressivism, kind of the realization that, you know, we want the government to build all these great things, right? Which is a solution that I don't like, but 
they saw that it doesn't work <laughs> and why doesn't it work? Right. Oh, there's all these regulations about housing, there's NEPA and exactly the things that you described. So there is like Medigrisias, Ezra Klein, an increasing coalition of Yimbyism that is aiming to, or at least in my view, has a correct analysis of the problem, right? Not necessarily a solution that I like. What can you paint as a picture of like the optimistic scenario and how would it look like? Is the only way really just political change? Because, you know, just getting the right person elected into office, looking at the last couple of elections and the kind of candidates that were available, like, is that supposed to be sort of the, you know, 250 years of democracy and that's what we end up with? And is that really something that should make us optimistic or excited and a potential solution? Yeah, I think it's important to look sort of that macro environment and sort of the factors. I look for, you know, bits of hope and I saw... You know, during the sort of final days of the Obama administration, a lot of talk about the issue about the issue of housing. They were certainly aware of that. And then we have a during the Trump administration, they made some early efforts at NEPA reform. And now during the Biden administration, uh, they're less interested. They seem less interested in NEPA reform, though I'm pretty sure the economists who work for Biden fully understand this issue. But they certainly have talked broadly about permitting, like that they realize there's a problem getting all this stuff built. And if these obstacles that we've described end up being realized as actual obstacles to that policy agenda, I think things can change. Uh, listen, I, you have uh, Senator, um, or rather Secretary Jennifer Granholm, you know, the energy secretary talking, I mean, she was delighted with this fusion breakthrough. Uh, last year and talking a lot about nuclear energy. I, I, it's been a long time since I've seen a public official as enthusiastic about nuclear energy. Listen, the government does, it, the United States government acts slowly. They I mean, it was built like that to act very slowly. And I hope there is enough confluence of factors. Hey, does it help if Poland can build nuclear reactors? Yeah, it helps. Other, that kind of those kind of comparative examples uh, are, are 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 certainly important. And when you have across this country, all the we have startups, we have startups and you know nuclear fusion startups, deep geothermal startups, uh, modular reactor startups. I mean, just looking at energy, uh, you can't ignore sort of the blossoming, all the AI startups, all of that happening. Uh, even the most unresponsive version of an American government sees what is going on. I don't think that can be ignored. Listen, everybody wants to win re-election. Everybody wants to say, when I was in office, we created jobs and the economy was booming. I think the prospect of being able to be that kind of president or governor saying, I presided over this amazing boom, now re-elect me or elect me to higher office. I think, I think that is a pretty powerful incentive. Uh, that if you think you can do it to be to pursue a very pro progress agenda, though to be clear, there are certainly people in both parties who are ground in who will want none of it. They will make the contrary case. They do not like disruption. They think it's either bad for communities or they think it's bad for the environment, and they are ideologically hardwired against it. Uh, I hope there are fewer of those people. Uh, I don't. I think there's not enough of those people over the long term. And I hope there's even fewer than I think. Yeah, there is this view of history 
uh, like the frontier view of history, right? So we got America because it was far away from Europe when it was kind of a new start. It was a frontier and we got like Silicon Valley and the American West because it was far away from Washington. Is there, could there be a new frontier? Mars? That would be good. And it's, it's funny that in the, in the book series, which I mentioned in the book, uh, The Expanse, uh, Mars is very entrepreneurial. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a startup planet. Uh, you know, people are way, Earth has kind of gotten slow and bogged down. In all seriousness, I, no country wants to fall behind. And that front, that, what, what Americans believe deeply about themselves. The, the, the national mythology is that we are a nation of risk takers, pioneers, and explorers, even in a big developed country like the United States. That that's kind of thing. And we like to believe that is who we are and that we are the winners and we are the leaders and we push the frontier. And I do not think that we can tolerate a world where that is obviously not true, that it is other countries leading the way in all these technologies. It is other countries which are growing faster. It is other countries that where immigrants are going to because they think this other country is the best place to make your, make your dreams come true. I, I think psychic, we cannot tolerate that. I th again, I think that is a tremendous incentive for us to take risks. Again, listen, not everyone needs to be an entrepreneur. It'd be great if we all had that spirit. Uh, we're not all huge risk takers, but there need to be enough of us who do that. And there need to be enough of us to support the people who do that, which is why I don't like when people purely view Elon Musk uh, or they, uh, they put it this way, that they think he hasn't really accomplished much. I'll get that a lot when I'll if I, if I, you know, if I you know, tweet something about SpaceX, it'll be like, oh, big deal. It's a rocket company. You know, is he even an engineer? Well, then you look at other countries trying to do it. It's pretty hard. It's not so easy creating a rocket company or, oh, it's only an electric, oh, it's only AI. It's, we've had computers forever. There's a certain mentality of people who diminish the achievement of people like Elon Musk and other entrepreneurs. And as part of the path to say, what they're doing isn't so special. They shouldn't have all that money. It'd be better used if we had that money, meaning the government, when they propose wealth taxes. Uh, but I'm glad that the government isn't the only source of ideas and action and innovation, that we have this other source. And as long as we keep valuing that other source, I think we can screw up a lot. I think we can make a lot of mistakes and we've made a lot of mistakes. But I think as long as you do not utterly quash that entrepreneurial element that is what we do best, you know, kind of the deep magic of the American economy, we can make a lot of other mistakes. But we lose that and it almost doesn't matter what else we do that's positive. Yeah. Let's talk a bit about immigration because to me that seems like the singularly if I had to choose like one lever to... Right, really invigorates the American spirit and innovation it would be that, right? I mean, it's looking at the immigrant founder types and at Silicon Valley and how much of it is, you know, most of it is really immigrants. And then at the actual policies of how hard it is to really immigrate, 
right? And now also seeing just because it's so hard, there's also an outflow of millionaires outside of the United States to places like Singapore or Dubai, like which in many ways I do think are models for the future, right? So uh, more city level governments, right? Where you're quicker to innovate and to develop a better product. So can you talk a bit about the possibility of that being something that we can change or affect to as like one of the tailwinds for, for, for America or for the United States? Often, if I, if I do an interview and I've started to do some about, you know, the book out next week is, you know, what is your one big policy idea? And I try not to say immigration because it seems like so basic and boring. Let smart people talented people, hardworking people, creative people come to your country, welcome them and, you know, make sure that, you know, that they can do what they want to do. It, it seems like so base level. I want to come up with something more interesting or exciting, but boy, I, I think you nailed it again. If you can get that part, right. Uh, economic growth is made out of people. It's made out of people doing things and creating and the huge advantage that the United States has had by being an attractive place for those people and then creating an environment where they can succeed. Again, I don't think that sort of the anti-immigrant sentiment, listen, it may be the case that policy will split and there'll be a real focus on what they view as sort of high-skill immigrants versus all else. I mean, I like immigrants of all kinds. I don't think, again, as you see immigrants going other places or leaving here or, you know, going to Toronto, that, that, that is a global competition issue. And I think the easiest case to make is fine. That person will invent this there. Why aren't we perhaps advanced in 5G? Because the 5G guy went back to China. Is that what you want? Well, then keep it up. Because that's what we're going to get. And it's not just making the system easier. You need to have a country that welcomes people, that makes it feel like, yeah, we want you. So it's not just kind of this bureaucratic reform. It's also just a general feeling that, listen, not to bring up Elon Musk again, one of my favorite quotes I heard him say it in, per in person was, if you want to go somewhere to make, to do big things, there's no better place than the United States of America. Uh, and what a loss it will be if enough people don't believe that is true. I mean, it's such a you know basic element of a successful country that wants to exist on the technological frontier. I almost feel as if if you can't get that part right, then you can toss away the rest of my agenda or anybody else's agenda because it shows you're so unfocused on the issue at hand that again, your head is somewhere else and it's not at a place that's going to keep the United States as the world's technological leader. So, uh, so my story, I mean, I mean, I was attracted to coming to the United States when I was at AI. And so I was an intern at AI. We didn't meet in person there, but it's where I learned about your work and I learned about, you know, Charles Murray and Milton Friedman and all these great people. And I just learned so much about that. And I really admired sort of the American founders and all that. But I was like the prime candidate to become an American citizen. And now I have an American wife. So there is a way for me to get the green card. But when I learned about double taxation, I was like, um, I, I don't know. 
Like, I, I actually don't think so. Like, what's really the advantage for me compared to, you know, doing this in Dubai or Singapore? I still have my, my visa to be here for like 180 out of um, days of the year. So that's something really, really urgent to fix for the United States, I think, because the other days, I was very predisposed to do it. And now I'm like, um, no, thanks. You need, a country needs to treat well people who want to build things, whether it's it's or Adam, cyberspace, whatever. We, they need to feel wanted and valued. Because I, I th sometimes I think, and, I, and, I, and, I, and unfortunately I think this is true, that there are people in government who think this is just kind of happens. Like, it doesn't really matter what we do. The companies will continue to be started, that people will continue to quit safe jobs, to start a company. That, that just stuff kind of happens and we can take it for granted. And then we can focus on sort of the redistribution part. We can redistribute the resources they create. And I, I particularly noticed this among people who are very into antitrust and breaking up big companies like Google and Amazon, is I felt they had, I felt they knew nothing about business on a real fundamental level, did not know how businesses would begin, did not know how they grow or how they operated, had never read the biography of an entrepreneur, had never read like the story of Coca-Cola or the story of McDonald's. I felt they just viewed it as this, as just this kind of entity that was a monopolist and didn't know really much more about it. And I think once you begin to dive deeper into what it takes to create a business, grow a business, start a new business, take a, a, a stagnant business and try to turn it around, you have a much deeper respect uh, for both sort of a commercial society and the ways government can interfere in a very detrimental way. So one thing I would recommend, <laughs> I would recommend to every member of Congress, if you're not going to read, if you're not going to, uh, if you're not going to read a book, um, watch a movie, watch a movie about how McDonald's got big. It was a great movie of Michael Keaton uh, about, uh, about McDonald's, like you know, how people, you know, people living and dying for these businesses and the, the effort and the creativity you know, and, and McDonald's isn't a high tech company, but the amount of creativity it took to make that work. I, 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 that's what I would recommend. I would at least watch a movie and then may have a, a little more appreciation about, about the entrepreneur and a commercial society and what, and how easy it is to screw it up and how important it is to nurture it. Cause that's what this book is about. It's not about creating. I may give some idea, you know, interesting ideas about what a great future might be like. That's just, that's just my idea. It doesn't have to be my idea. What I want is create an environment where we all can ha have a role in sort of creating the future we want to live in. I, among my policy ideas, it isn't let's create a department of the future where we're going to send some people and they're going to, you know, in a, in a room with a bunch of flat screen TVs and computer monitors, they're going to create the, the, the 10, 20, 30, 40 year plan for the future. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about making sure we have the kind of environment where innovation can happen, innovation can take the next step, and that kind of growth ecology. That is fundamentally like my version of conservative futurism, not a detailed 50-year national strategy, which I'd be very skeptical of. What impact do you want the book to have? And specifically, like, 
who does it address and what specific nudges or changes do you think um, it can engender in people and, and what pathways do you see for people to, um, for that kind of audience that you intend to reach to really take action? Listen, I'm in Washington, D.C., and I and obviously I would like uh, people in Congress, their staffers, uh, to be aware of the book and its arguments and to present, I think, the view I present of what is possible, it's like a book of the possible, is not a view that has uh, particularly, I think, and that, you know, and again, I work at a think tank that certainly codes center-right, not a view which certainly people on the right and the Republican Party has been thinking a lot about lately. That what seems ascendant is a view of that we, that what we wish really should do is go back to 1964 or something. And that's where we should look for inspiration. Um, one, one of the uh, people I mentioned in the book is this uh, uh, a guy, Herman Kahn, who was, a, uh, who was a futurist in the 1970s and early 80s. Before that, he was a nuclear war theorist. Uh, but for a guy who was a nuclear war theorist, he was kind of an optimist. And he was an extreme optimist. And he wrote, and while he did a lot of scenario planning and that kind of thing that you think futurists might do, professional futurists, Fundamentally, he believed that if you made some good decisions and got a little bit of luck and really believed in the power of what he would call techno-capitalism, you're going to be, listen, you're going to be in pretty good shape. And when he died in 1983, President Reagan mentioned his death and said he was a futurist who did not fear the future, who embraced the future. Right now, at least on the right, I think there's a lot of people who aren't embracing the future, who do fear the future, who think the future is going to be controlled by you know, elites they don't trust, that it will be a future of, that it will be, and I think this unfortunately may be true among populists on the left and right, they think it'll be a poorer future, a less interesting future. The kids won't do as well. So I'm trying to provide both a different image of the future and some ideas of how we can get there. Because I have a lot of confidence that if we have an economy that is growing quickly, where people see that it's getting better, that they feel the gains in their lives, that will solve a lot of sort of these pessimism problems. Look, in the 1990s, we had a very fast, we had a very fast economy. We also had a lot more inequality. But, there were, but you didn't hear people talking about late capitalism and the rise of socialism, just the opposite. We were talking about socialism as dead. Capitalism is triumphant, even though there was more inequality. Why? Because everybody was feeling the gains. And it turns out people really care a lot more about their own lives if they think they're doing better. Even if someone else might be doing even better than they are, if they feel like they're doing better and they're being rewarded for their efforts, they're not going to worry so much you know, what the CEO is making or, or if a billionaire is now uh, a centibillionaire. Uh, so, I, so that's, I mean, I think growth matters. It's not just about lines going up and, you know, aggregate government statistics. It's a proxy for positive change in people's everyday lives. Yeah. What I see is the two pathways to, to make progress and to bring about that future and we just need to, it's twofold, right? So one is the exit strategy, one is the voice strategy. And so, so in my space, I'm more on the exit side, right? So the several individual, the network state, Balaji Srinivasan, 
we sort of build more like Dubai's or Singapore's outside. Um, but it's, I think it's reinforcing with voice, right? So I think many of these reforms inside the country, inside of the United States, where a lot of the good stuff started as well, like a lot of the innovation about, of the technology, the technology progress, limited government and things like that, that can embolden that too. And to make that argument, um, the problem is that, for example, in medical innovation or in financial, the United States is actively destroying innovation elsewhere, right? So by having, making the FDA kind of the to-go place that other countries adopt in similar ways or crypto and securities you can sell to Americans and you have all this like KYC that destroys any operability, right? Because it automatically makes access to the largest capital market in the world really difficult. Like we need to build around that, right? We need to do that outside. But then I want that to empower like voices that say, for example, state sites like Montana has come up with a new legislation that improves Trump's right to try laws in the, in the, in the state. Right? I think so that's the right way, right? By showing we can build these industries outside and you're going to miss out on, um, and then giving it to the right reformers that can implement it stateside or that like Uber advocates our startups or are advocating for startups. I think there's also increasingly a number of VCs taking the role, Bradley Tusk, for example, or Trust Ventures, and that can embolden them as well. I think examples of, of success, I've certainly spent a lot of my life hearing about the examples of health systems in other countries. So I, listen, so I think things being started elsewhere and people inside that space being able to say that, why wasn't that started here? I think those kinds of examples where people say, you know, we need to exit. We need to go somewhere else to begin that does help people here make that case. I think you're absolutely right about that. Yes. What do you see or do you see any potential um, for like stateside reform? Because that's what I keep hearing about, though I haven't been in D.C. for a long time. That's like a low-hanging fruit that we're not making enough news of. I think what you're seeing with the, the sort of uh, rollout of uh, autonomous vehicles shows like how powerful that can be, where you see even, even, you know, even in states where, that you don't feel like are friendly regulatory environments like California, that you can, you can start a, a business based on an emerging technology. I mean, that's a big positive in the United States is you have states in competition with each other. And some governors get it. Some governors don't. It's up to the United States, uh, the federal govern government, to make sure states have the latitude to be these kinds of laboratories of innovation. Sometimes it's the role of the government, you know, not to intervene and let states handle things. I think we're, I think the autonomous vehicles is, is turning out to be a good example. And I think, you know, you mentioned earlier about like, you know, the FDA. I mean, we really, uh, and I hope this is one of the examples people draw from the pandemic, is we saw what happens when government, government performs poorly, that the, that the FDA performed poorly. I think we're starting to accrue enough examples, whether it's the FDA during the pandemic or the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, that I hope we're at the point, we're reaching an inflection point where somebody is going to put all these together and say, this is the risk. This is what happens when government 
is primarily a barrier to innovation. It isn't just being a barrier to entrepreneurs becoming billionaires. It's a barrier to change that affects our everyday lives. And they can't handle nuclear reactors. They can't handle advanced medicines. And yet they want to do more. We should be skeptical. Let's fix what they do bad. Let's start by fixing out what they're already not doing bad so we can have advanced medicines and we can have advanced nuclear. Wouldn't that be awesome? Yeah, I agree. We do have a window of opportunity to fix some of these things. Um, again, the space I chose is to do, it, to do it outside, right? So on the island, for example, we're doing clinical trials and medical tourism, right? There's just so much bureaucracy that you can cut, even following like the same safety protocols. Uh, and I think it's also something that's not used enough, right? So we're using the model of special economic zones, similar to Dubai or to Singapore, Shenzhen, China. And we're very close to the United States, right? And paradoxically, like the United States is kind of our best political relationship because uh, I think there is many policymakers who want to see that happen, right? They're just they're inside the system and they're like, yeah, I want these, to see these things too. I just can't. But this is great, you know, do more of that. I have more examples to show. So that's my case for, I, for optimism. Right. I mean, I think, I think sometimes people have this lack of imagination. They don't see how they can get out of the cage. And if they can see the example of someone who got out of the cage and is doing something, and that can just be a powerful incentive just to know something is, to know something is possible. The, 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 the classic example is that once we broke the four minute mile, lots of people started breaking the four minute mile. It's like once humans knew they could do it, a lot of them started doing it. Now, I don't, I don't think that it, I think it is somewhat apocryphal as, a, as an analogy or as a metaphor, but I choose to believe it anyways, because it does make a lot of sort of intuitive sense that, that once you know the seemingly unlikely or impossible can indeed be done, you, boy, you just work a lot harder making sure that you can do that, that it can happen in your life. Exactly. And it's also why entrepreneurs are saving the world, right? To make that first step and to show what's possible. I love, I love entrepreneurs. We, you know, we all don't have to be one, but we better make sure we support them. So on this podcast, I often focus like a lot on the problems, like everything that's wrong with like NEPA and the FDA and whatever. And then these entrepreneurs always tell me, yeah, Nicholas, but we got to do something. <laughs> right. So <laughs> do it like the spirit of action and however the world has looked like, we're going to make it better. Um, which adapt, is very inspiring. Adapt and overcome. Adapt and overcome. Exactly. Uh, Jim, is there anything else that we haven't talked about, but that you feel like that's important to kind of cover the scope and steps of your book? I think we've covered a lot of it. The only, um, maybe the only thing I'll toss out there is, um, I think what we believe matters. I think what we believe the future can be matters. And one, one small idea, it's buried all, it's buried deep in the book. Maybe you've heard of the doomsday clock, very famous for the bulletin of atomic scientists. They come out every couple of years. They'll say, well, now we're closer to midnight, meaning Armageddon. Now we're a little bit further away from Armageddon. And it used to just be about nuclear war. Then it became about nuclear war and the environment and, and uh, pathogens and AI. And well, I suggest we should create what I call the Genesis clock. So instead of doomsday, it shows how far we are, instead of midnight, it shows how far we are from the dawn of a new era of abundance and prosperity. Uh, and it should be based on things like lowering global poverty, you know, creating, uh, getting X percent 
of the U.S. economy running on nuclear energy. I have this long list of things I'll, I'll probably be adding to it. So I like to see that, like that kind of metaphor be presented to people. Like how far, not how close we are to midnight and do, but how close are we to creating like really the kind of future prosperous world uh, that I think is possible that we dreamed of, that Hollywood shows too rarely. Uh, so uh, I'm pro Genesis clock. I'm, I'm going to be pushing that hard. Love it. The Genesis Club perfectly encapsulates <laughs> your book and your work. So I can highly recommend my listeners. I'll leave a link in the show notes to the book, The Conservative Futurist, How to Create the Sci-Fi World We Were Promised, and also to your fantastic Substack, Faster Please, with an exclamation mark. Very generous. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Jim. Loved it. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.